Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Good morning. invite you to open your Bible to the little book of Zephaniah. This morning we're going to be reading and then working our way through the final chapter there, Zephaniah chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles there in the back. Uh, Feel free to take one of those home with you. It can be yours, okay? If you're using one of them, I believe it's on page 460. If you're unfamiliar with where Zephaniah might be in the Bible, it is in the Bible, It's on page 460 of the little blue ones back there, okay? So Zephaniah chapter 3. Here the prophet records under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant, So I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord, From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. 
but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. And so ends Zephaniah. Won't you pray with me? Oh Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we confess our great need in this moment for more than what a worm like myself can give. I am a worm. You are the word. So come, meet with us. Teach us, every one of us in our hearts. Cause the dead to live cause the living to become lovely for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Zephaniah says there in verse 14, I think the controlling imperative, or at least one of them, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. When I was away on sabbatical, I visited a church that did precisely that. They sang, and they sang loudly, like really loudly. And it was wonderful. It was heavenly. The singing, the singing of the church was a ministry in and of itself to every gathered soul. I came to find out that this developed as I think COVID 
took them outdoors where their voices had to contend with the elements outside. They had to contend with things like the wind. And uh, in order to hear each other, they had to raise the volume of their voices. And then when they returned indoors, they'd learn to sing full-throated. And mighty as it was, indoors, they refused then to throttle it down. And why should they? When God's called us to sing aloud. And with great reason. The question for us this morning is, do we know what those reasons are? A brother named uh, Dustin Bingy, I think. I don't know how he pronounce his last name. Anyway, he recently wrote this book called The Loveliest Place. The loveliest place. And any use of the superlative means to make for a mighty statement. The loveliest place. And while I wish it had been titled The Loveliest People, the point is made in the subtitle. It's about the beauty and glory of the gathered church as a people who are reflecting the beauty and the glory of God. We're a display of His grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'll ask us just now then, when you think of the church, is that what you think of? Do you think divine beauty? Maybe you're an unbeliever here this morning, you think of church and I don't know, you think boredom, you think hoax, you think hypocrisy, you think irrelevance, and maybe that's what you're thinking because as any honest believer can attest, far from being the the loveliest people in the world, sometimes the church really can be the ugliest. We're meant to mirror the loveliness of the Lord Jesus Christ, but instead of doing that, so many become these redundant reflections of the ungodly world in which we exist. The people that gather, they may be church-going, but they've long become God-ignoring people so that it's more serpent than Savior that they show. Some of you I know have not only seen that, you've lived that. And yet, in God's grace, you have managed to keep this good hope. You long... For a people of purer worship. You long for a people who are bold in truth and in the grace of God. You long for a fold that is well fed. You mourn like we see in the text, though perhaps you didn't know it. You mourn for this festival. You mourn for a church that not only has reason to sing aloud to God, but is in her beauty reason to have even God singing over her. Maybe to you that sounds like mission impossible. Just from experience. That seems like mission impossible. But if it does, that's why we have our text today. God can create a people that thrills His heart to singing. So, let's come to it and consider first weeping. Not singing, 
weeping over a people of God in their rebelliousness. I was listening to a guy the other day, Jeremy Meeks, I think was his name, and he said, of all the, the books in the Bible, the prophets, more than any other, crucify civil religion. We might say nominal Christianity or cultural Christianity. In these verses, verses 1 through 8, Zephaniah, you see there, he returns to Judah and Jerusalem, though you'd hardly know it. The lines between the subjects of condemnation from chapter 2 to chapter 3 seem to be intentionally blurred, and they're intentionally blurred like that because there really is no line between them at all. There's no living difference between God's quote-unquote reformed people and the whole of the unbelieving, ungodly world around them. So I'm sure that you've all seen an exoskeleton before. What at a glance has this appearance of a living organism proves upon closer inspection to be only the shell of a life that once was. The life that was in the building has left the building. So that all you have is the memory of a life. You have the appearance of something. You have the look of something. But you don't have the life of it. You don't have the vigor of it. You do not have the power of it. And beloved, isn't that what the Apostle Paul warns us about? That it's quite possible to be a people with the appearance of godliness. Here you are, gathered with the church in a sanctuary on Sunday morning. It's possible for us to have the appearance of godliness and all the while be denying its power. It's possible for us to be those who know no difference between wearing a Sunday suit and adorning the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts and in our lives. Zephaniah is here to tell us if in heart-indicating behavior, we are indistinct from the world right now, we will not suddenly be distinct from the world hereafter in judgment. In fact, as Jesus says, it's going to be worse for those who should have known better only to do worse. Judah is an historical and typological warning of a people of God, if you look at verse 1, who are rebellious, defiled, and depressing. And so we can see their issues and run the other way. Let's be sure to mark two main things here. The first is, they are an uncorrectable people. They're an uncorrectable people. We see this in verse 2 and throughout verses 5 to 7. That pride that we saw a week ago, that pride of the ungodly has invaded the assembly of God and it's also infected the assembly of God. So, when I say they were uncorrect, uncorrectable, just to specify here, what's meant there is that they would not listen to God. They would not listen to God. They would not listen to any godly person who sought to love them with the truth of His Word. They might have been ceremonial, ceremonially sitting under the sound of the Word of God, but they would not be altered by the Word of God. They wouldn't be changed by it. Into the temple they went, as we also this hour, only to go back out of the temple, still in league with the world. I am. I am. And there is no one else. 
So verse 2, it says, they listened to no voice. They accepted no correction. They did not trust the Lord. They would not take Him at His word. And all the inducements that God could give them didn't matter. It didn't matter, for instance, that despite all of their sinning, for centuries, God was still, you see it in the text, He's still there in the city. He's still there to meet with this rebellious people. And so mercy that was meant to melt their hearts into true worship melted nothing at all. What about His justice? Not only is He unfailingly righteous, verse 5, but He's given them a history of proofs that this is the case. He will not fail. How many times have you seen it throughout the Bible? He will not fail to act justly against an unrepentant people. From a person to a people to the peoples, if you persist securely in your sin, if you are an unrepentant person, there is but one expectation in the Bible, and you see it in verse 6, and that is utter condemnation, desolation, not a man left. This people, they've seen this. And they've heard this. Again, it's in the book. It's in the book. But they don't heed the book. They're unmoved by it. Neither manifest mercy nor historical justice sufficed to move them off their sins. Indeed, what does God say at the end of verse 7? But that the more He abided with them, the more He suffered with them, the more He instructed them, the more He sought to correct them, the more He persuaded them and pulled upon their hearts, the more they sinned. That's a rebel heart. Divine correction, all it did was aggravate and multiply their corruption. <laughs> Y'all listen. How hard is the unconverted human heart? It will not be moved by anything. Can anything other than omnipotent grace. Turn it. These are not hearts here who are left to themselves. They're hearts that have been sought out in divine jealousy. God's like, you belong to me. You're mine. I love you. Turn. Their hearts with so many advantages, and yet their hearts that take no advantage by them. But instead, what they do is they, they take them and they shamelessly transform them into a license to do whatever they want to do. What about us, dear ones? As you and I have gathered today, God knows, God knows, I think you do too. We need to be corrected. 
God knows that we need to be changed. What are we doing here? God knows that we need to be changed. And so he calls us not only to sit under his word like this. This is not the end game. It's to take him at his word. The question is, do we do that? Is it ever before us not just to be settled and content that we are justified, praise God, but then to go on to be sanctified, to grow in Christ, to become like Him? Is it ever before us to have Jesus Himself formed within us? In what ways have you come today needing divine correction? I might even hope to say longing for it. Because in that longing, right there is where you see the new heart that we're moving towards in our text. I forget who said it, but he's very, very right that it is a mighty big person who can be corrected by the Word of God. Is that you? Is that us? Are we a church humble? before the text of Scripture. If, if one here saw the need, are we the sort of people who are able to be corrected in our sins and in our errors and in our waywardness, or are we like Judah? You see, not only were they unwilling to be corrected, but they sought to avoid it entirely. How so? Like this. By appointing and accumulating leaders in life and ministry who would affirm them in their worldliness. That's the second issue here for them. Which we see in verses 3 and 4. You see there that they piled up officials and judges and prophets and priests who were not gods. That's why they're offset from the Lord in verse 5. They and the Lord are in direct contrast with one another. That's not good. God is there to meet with sinners in order to save them if they would. But the ministers get in the way of that. They're obstacles to that. Stumbling blocks. No. The congregation here might not have it anyway. But the ministers are no help to them. You see, they're not protectors, they're predators. They're not shepherds, they're lions and wolves that pick the exoskeleton of God's people clean. They're not convictional men. They are fickle men. They are chaff blowing in the wind. That's what they are. A far cry from Robert Murray McShane, a great Scottish pastor, who said, the thing my people need most of all is my personal holiness. Do you know a pastor today in the whole of your life who says that is the most important thing my people need? You don't. I'm just telling you. The most important thing my people need is my holiness. Everything else will flow from that. 
Instead of that, these men not only marginalize the holy, but in their using it to their own ends to justify sin, to change nothing that needed changing, they even profaned holy things. Unconcerned for souls, they ministered no law, and therefore they could not minister any real gospel to the people. Beloved, why do New Englanders talk about the ghost of Christianity? Church buildings everywhere you go. What are they? Restaurants, apartments, and whatnot. Why is there so much ugliness in so many churches? Why are so many more, however big they are, little more than dead bones at last? Why do so many, for all their God talk, mirror in practice, the world's rebellion. It's that somewhere along the way, people drifted away from the Word of God and the God of that Word until people who know little or nothing at all of either were allowed to lead that people. Friends, listen, if the shepherds are predators, what of the sheep? If the preachers are fickle, will the people be mighty in faithfulness? If the exemplars for the church are in themselves wretches, will the disciples be righteous? Only by the grace of God. But dear ones, this is why it's so important that you choose your teachers wisely. This is why it's so important that you give care to guarding the membership of this church. Because ultimately, you guys are the ones who are given authority by Jesus Christ for the ministers that you put over yourselves. That's why it's so important that you appoint officers that under examination continue to meet the biblical criteria for those offices. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. 1 Peter 4 and 5. Hebrews 13. That's why it's so important that we pray all we can to align this people of God with the Word of God because it tends so very much to our Christ-likeness. The deftest way to kill a people of God is to let them compromise themselves into oblivion. And man, does that mark so much of so-called Christianity today. Compromise after compromise after compromise after compromise, and the Word of God just gets pushed away. Just to let them compromise themselves into carelessness with the Word of God. We do that, and over time, we will have a Christless 
people. It'll lead either to a congregation that will kill faithful pastors, or it'll lead to pastors that will kill the congregation by being too kind, but really careless to correct them by the Word of God. The whole thing should cause us not to fume, which is so much my temptation, but to faint for something more. Something truer, something purer for all the people of God. Do you mourn for such a festival as Zephaniah says? Not just in our church, but certainly in our church. Are you desperate? Why do we have a prayer gathering at 9.40 on Sunday morning ahead of corporate worship? We're trying to say we want to be desperate to see a people who are proving the power of saving grace. Do we long to exemplify a people who with cause sing aloud and give cause for God to exult over us with loud singing, sinners as we be? Is it possible that we could bring such joy to the God who lacks no joy at all? Zephaniah says yes. He speaks repeatedly, when you get a little technical now, he speaks repeatedly of a time, now past, when Jerusalem would be destroyed. And with it, an age of judgment and salvation would settle in as a precursor to this world-encompassing day of the Lord. You see that in verses 7 and 8 there. But you also see something else. That in that age, which I think we rightly call the church age, beginning in Acts chapter 2, God would raise up a beautiful people through the crucified and risen Jesus. What that Israel of his day finalized by killing him God ordained and utilized in creating us this new and true Israel from all the world. So, I want us to hear this morning, you and I, we as a church, really are purposed to be the loveliest people. So what I want to do, if you'll just lend me some rope to hang myself is to patchwork together Zephaniah's portrait of God's praiseworthy people so that we come out the other side no longer weeping as much as we are singing over a people who are bearing not our own inherent loveliness, but the loveliness of His grace. So if I may, it's all very basic. I'd say that distinct from a rebellious people, we're to be a really praying people. You go to Genesis chapter 4, verse 26. You'll find this there. It's almost synonymous with true worship. That as it says in our verse 9, we call upon the name of the Lord. That's what we do. 
We call upon the name of the Lord. What we first do at our conversion, we do throughout the entirety of our lives in Christ. Prayer. This breathing God word is a sign of life in the heart. And from such a heart, our lips begin to prove that we're under no illusion of our own greatness and grandeur. We know, don't we, that we are weak and lame and shamed and outcast. As it says in verse 19. What that means is we know that the Lord ultimately is our strength. I think it was John Piper, if you're familiar with that name. John Piper was once confronted by a skeptic who said he couldn't go with Christianity, he just couldn't do it because it was just a crutch for weak people. To which Piper responded, you're right. And that's why I am a Christian. And not just because I'm weak, but because I was dead. And now alive, am still so very weak. Friend, listen, everybody is broken. Everybody's broken, everybody's weak, everybody's needy. The difference between you, if you're an unbeliever, and the Christian is that the Christian's been made to see that and to believe that, and even as Paul says, to boast in that. Insofar as gathered together, we then become a people who are leaning into the power of God for all we need to be this people of God. If a church doesn't pray, it's dead. If it's dead, it's decaying. If it's decaying, it can't be lovely. But if it does pray, my goodness, how lovely it can be. But here's another patch of loveliness that again, distinct from that rebellious people, we're to be a company of servant-hearted people as at the end of verse 9. There is something to be said for honor and hierarchy in the context of a local church. It's just that on the lips of Jesus, we know, you go to the Gospels, you'll find it there, that it is the least that'll be the greatest. The least will be the greatest. <laughs> what, what an ugly thing it is when Christians, ignoring the heart of Christ, pitch fits about having the power, having the priority, having the preeminence, instead of serving Him with one accord. Is the cause of God your own? Is it our own? Or is it God's? And how did the most lovely person who ever lived go about it? Did he go about it by being served? Although he was infinitely and eternally worthy of being served, did he go about it by being served? Or did he go about it by serving? Did he go about it by building a platform for himself? We love that. Or did he go about it by dying on a Roman cross? You know what showcases the loveliness of God? It's Miss Rita's constancy of service in our clothes closet. It's Janet's zeal 
for basically holding the church together. It's Jonathan Fox's willingness to do whatever is asked of him for your sake. It's Pastor George and the wife behind him offering up his life. I mean, y'all don't see it, but I do. Like week after week after week for our health in the Lord Jesus. It's Corey building me a pulpit by hand in love to me and in love to the primacy of the Word of God amongst this church. It's Bill Reed not allowing a living soul to exist without an invitation to come and hear that word. It's Victoria, who like a year ago only knew how to play the ukulele, teaching herself the guitar to meet a need that we had in lyrical worship. We could just pile these things up. I could go on and on and on. You get the point. Like a great part of our divine loveliness is being a prayerfully servant-hearted people and not just in one or two professional servants, but in the whole as a body of Christ. What better way to develop that heart than to be a forgiven people who refuse to forget that fact, right? I recall the daughter of Martin Lloyd-Jones when asked about the source of her father's vigor in ministry, she just said this. She said, he never got over the fact that God had saved him. Wow. He was like the greatest preacher of the 20th century. Why did he keep on doing it week after week after week? Ah, oh, the most basic thing. God has saved me. Can you believe it? <laughs> or I think of one of the more renowned theologians of the 20th century who with his last words before he went to see the Lord face to face said only, thank God for the active obedience of Jesus. (sighs) No hope without it. Dear ones, if we're to maintain anything to our loveliness, it has to be the wonder of the love of God in Christ. Doesn't it? Do you see what the Lord says in verses 11 and then 15? He says, You shall not be put to shame for the deeds by which others have rebelled against me. No, that's not what He says. Do you see? You shall not be put to shame in that day for the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. You're guilty. But you're justified. I will take away the judgments, as verse 15. I will take away the judgments that were against you. I will clear away your enemies. And of course, in the context here, some of that is, is dealing with the end of exile for Israel and whatnot. But then as you bleed that out into the New Testament, we know what that involves. It involves Jesus living Himself without rebellion 
and suffering in the place of sinners like you and me as he died for us on the cross only to then enter and then exit our graves, Savior of everyone who believes. And the visible church as a believing people are then a forgiven people who refuse to forget my sin. Oh, the bliss. Is it really bliss to your heart? Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more or evermore. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Do we have this loveliness about us? A people who are alive to the wonder of the cross. A people who are extolling justification to our very last breath. Praise God for the active obedience of Jesus Christ. I have no hope without it. Renowned theologian. Done so much. Are we a prayerful, servant-hearted, gospel-loving people? There is another patch, and I would just sum it up like this. A people bearing God's loveliness will be a people who happily bow to the Bible. Contrary again to this rebellious congregation, Judah, Jerusalem, in this day, we'd have the Word of God correct us. We want the Word of God to change us. It is a lovely people for whom it is written is the end of the matter. For whom God's Word, again as Spurgeon said, is the ultimatum. Do you see that in verses 12 and 13? We're given an an analogy here. Zephaniah says, this people like well-attended sheep will what? They will graze. You see that? They will graze and they will lie down. They will eat until their heart is content. They will make their bed in the Word of God. They'll graze and they'll lie down. Therefore, because they do that, humble enough to seek the Lord for it, they will be changed as human beings. They will be a people who are righteous. You see that in the verses there. They'll be righteous. They'll be sincere. They'll be honest. They'll be truthful people. And that, dear ones, if you've ever just wondered, that is why we try to feed you the way that we feed you here. We want you to know the Word of God and the God of that Word. We believe He speaks truth and grace in every line of this book to the salvation of sinners and then to the sanctification of His people. And so we do our best, we do our best not to fiddle with the Word of God. We don't want to be fiddlers here. We do our best not to be fickle with the Word of God. We want to be convictional here. We do our best to feed you with all the fullness of the Word of God. 
Because emaciated sheep, starved sheep, are hardly more lovely than dead goats. And for that reason, the lovely people will be neither of those, emaciated or dead goats. We'll be a people who love to take the Word to heart so that by and by, Christ Himself, the Word, is formed within us. One last patch. Upon all the rest, we're going to be a fearless people. A fearless people. Starting at the end of verse 13 and reaching into verse 16 and 17, Zephaniah fixes on this fact that we have nothing to fear, and we know it. But it's not at all about our fearsomeness that we have nothing to fear, or that we'll not have to face anything that's frightening. If anything, in this world, it can get really ugly for the lovely people of God. What does Paul say again in 2 Timothy Chapter 3, verse 12. That if anyone desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, and don't we want to do that? He says, you do that, you will suffer persecution for it. In Romans chapter 8, he says, we are all counted as sheep. And we're like, man, I love sheep. Sheep are cuddly and cute and fluffy, but that's not how the world sees us. He says, we're all counted as sheep for the slaughter. All day long, the rebellious are appointing crosses for faithful Christians and faithful churches alike. So, it's not that there's nothing fearful to face for us, but that we're able to stare those things right in the face, as it says of Sarah in 1 Peter chapter 3, we're able to stare them right in the face, fearful as they may be, and yet be fearless. Why? Because we are so mighty as a people of God? No. But because we're a people in whose midst stands a mighty one who will save. And we know it. I had my, my day with my Lydia this past week. We read these verses together. And after we read them, I asked her, why don't these well-fed sheep fear anything? That's exactly what she said. Quote, the shepherd is with them. And I just died, you know. The shepherd is with them. And realizing that, beloved, will make us fearless too. If we know God is in our midst and that He's wearing a smile, what have we to fear? Isn't that consolation enough for every disconsolation? A church tends to become rebellious when they lose sight of this person for another lowercase p person. Be it a pastor, be it a great preacher, a power broker in the church, a businessman, a pragmatist, whatever. They fixate on them. There's all our hope. There's all our security. 
There's all our success. But the beauty of a church then is so much her ability to never, ever lose sight of Jesus Christ, our chief shepherd. You see Him, you see the one who is mighty to raise people from the dead. Save them. You see Him, you see one rejoicing to sanctify His people. You see Him, you see one who is constantly reassuring you on your worst days, in your worst moments, on your worst days, I've loved you from all eternity. You see Him, you see one who is exulting over you with loud singing. And will that one lose you or fail you or forsake you or ever leave you for dead? Not in a million years. In fact, I think we can say on the basis of the Bible, not ever. He died to make us a praise in all the earth. Verse 20. So believe it. He's with us, as he says in the Great Commission there, Matthew 28, he is with us to the very end of the age. Be fearless. And so, as we're people proving the power of saving grace, we've just seen we will be a praying people, a servant-hearted people, a gospel-loving, gospel-minded people, a Bible-loving people who, for Christ, fear nothing that's frightening. Man, such a people really is altogether lovely. It's a heavenly people. But the point of the text is not to keep it up in the clouds. The point of the text is not to imprison all of that to wishful thinking. Woe is me. The point of the text is to trust God to make this concrete among us. It's that we really can be an outpost of heaven on earth. Imperfect, absolutely. But nonetheless true and differential as a people. Again, the controlling imperative isn't sing aloud, shout, rejoice, and exult with all your heart if you can because we'll see this in glory land some best day. That's true. But it's all that here because as a week ago, what once was but a collection of stubble for the fires of judgment is being gathered up as a display of the glory of the grace of Jesus Christ here and now. So if you're not a Christian, much of all of this is to show you the only hindrance to your salvation is the rebel heart in you. Perhaps even now that rebel heart, to be excused, it says, well, I'm just too weak. I'm too ashamed, I'm too lame, I'm too far outcast to be welcomed by God into such a people as this. But this whole text, this whole Word of God denies that. 
it says that it's all his heart to do precisely the opposite. Even to the degree that he sent his only son into the world and gave him up to the cross in order that you yourself might be saved from your sins. So all you have to do is to repent of your sins and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will find, I promise you, God Himself promises you, in the passage, you will find God in His grace mighty to save you. So won't you do that? Church, how it delighted me this week. Hope, I think you can probably tell, right? To consider how the Lord's working all these lovely things in us. I see all of them, and I pray that you do too just to see them stretched and exercised and strengthened all the more, right? And still, what cause we have to sing aloud as the Lord continues to make us a people who are joining His chorus with gusto. Beloved, in order to advance, grow, develop as we should, some wins, some wins will have to be contended with while others just have to be caught. That Zephaniah's Lord will be awesome. That's what he says. Yes, in judgment, but also in creating a people through it that thrills his heart to singing. That is one for raising the sails and going on to do everything we can to take him at his word. Right? Yes? Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. As you are in our midst, I pray that every single one of our hearts would know how much you have loved us. I pray that you would make us inside out faithful reflections of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us as a people to bear your beauty. We look to you alone for it. You alone can do it. In Jesus' name, amen.